Okay, if you would turn with me to John chapter 8. Now, I mean, this is a, you know, you, you heard the epistle, it's confusing. What is he talking about? And uh, he calls them liars and says they're of the, tells the Pharisees and the scribes that they're of their father, the devil. You know, some churches think, if you talk like that, that's just not, some churches are more worried about being a gentleman or gentlewoman than speaking the truth. There's something about being a hillbilly that it resonates in me that Jesus knew when enough was enough and he had to say the truth even when it wasn't pretty. He didn't dance around it, didn't try to make it sound nice. He spoke like needed to be spoken because heaven and hell were and are at stake. So, but to explain what's going on uh, in the reading this morning, I'm giving you the story in John. John gives us a, a healing story, an encounter with people, and then he explains the theology. The different gospels are set up in different ways. This is how John sets up his gospel. So I'm going to go through the story this morning um, and of the uh, woman caught in adultery in Jesus, how he deals with that to explain what's going on in the end. But let's suffice to say that in John chapter 7 was the first time that the Pharisees and the scribes tried to kill Jesus. But what happened was there was too much public approval of him for them to carry out their plan. So by the time John 8 comes along, now they're trying to set him up. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to put him in a position that he does something or says something that will get him in trouble, that will make him both in trouble with the Romans and or will take him and make him less popular with the people. All right? Now, the story in the book end of chapter 8 is this. In the beginning that we're going to look at in this story, the self-righteous want to stone the woman caught in adultery. By the end of the chapter, and the kind of the secret to this chapter is, by the end of the chapter, they take up stones to kill Jesus. So it starts with trying to kill this woman, and it ends with trying to stone and kill Jesus. And the question sort of is, how did it happen that in this interaction of this story, they went from taking this woman there and trying to publicly kill her and stone her to changing their mind and wanting to kill Jesus instead? All right, so that's giving away a little bit of the end at the beginning, but there it is. All right, let me get this one. I don't know why. My voice is fine, and then I get up here. Okay, maybe not fine, Don, but it's okay. Excuse me. All right. So you don't have John 7, 53, but it says, and the people went home, and he went to the Mount of Olives. So the people were tired, worn out from a previous day and stuff. Now Jesus goes to pray at the Mount of Olives. So he's at the Mount of Olives, Olives, Mount of Olives, uh, and so he wakes up and he's telling them about how he's the light of the world. And he comes and begins to teach in the temple at the break of dawn. So here he is as the light's coming out and he's getting and teaching the people. Remember, in the culture of the Jews, as in many cultures, the teacher sat and the people stood. So if you've been to a Greek Orthodox or one of the Orthodox churches, you'll see how that works. Uh, and it's different than the way we do it here in the West, nonetheless. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, spent the night. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. Three, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. 
Now, the Old Testament had very specific rules about what to do. So if you had your Bibles or if you're taking notes, you could go to Deuteronomy 22.22. And it says that if a man and woman are caught in adultery, that they are to stone the man and the woman. That is to pick up stones and to kill them. All right? So this is not an easy thing and not a little thing. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that they bring the woman, but they don't bring the man. And they're going to tell us that she was caught in the act. So there was a man, and they knew the man. But they didn't bring the man. So the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3, brought him a woman caught in adultery. And they did, of course, this to test him. And when they had set her in the middle of everything, they said to him, and again, they're trying to trick him or trap him to put him in an impossible dilemma that no matter what he does, it's going to go bad. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Uh, you can't imagine what that would have been like in the whole, you know, you talk about a terrifying thing and knowing that they're dragging you to the temple and they're going to want to kill you and you know it. Can you imagine the trauma of this whole thing? Now Moses, they say, reminding Moses, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And this is the emphatic you. Like, what do you say? Now, they suspected that Jesus would want to forgive. And so they're trying to put him in a position that he will somehow not take seriously the holiness and the righteousness of God. And this is, I mean, the $10 million question. How is it that a holy and righteous God, that we can uphold the righteousness and the holiness of God, and at the same time know God in his mercy and his forgiveness? And of course, we don't really know until the cross. Jesus is anticipating this, right? But I mean, that is a tough question. I mean, we don't want to take lightly God's word. I mean, we have people in today that say sort of sin's no big deal. And that's the wrong message. The answer is not. The gospel of Jesus is not that sin's little. It's that the cross is really big. Okay? We don't help anybody by telling them it's no big deal. Your sin's no big That's not the answer. The answer is, no matter how big our sins are, the love of God has been manifested in the life and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there is forgiveness and transformation in his love and his forgiveness. All right, that's the message. But they're put in a position, are you going to take lightly and trying to, you're not going to want to have a stone this woman, so we'll put you in this position that you're going to speak against God's holiness. Jesus doesn't do that. He upholds the righteousness of the law and the holiness of God. At the same time, he doesn't fall into their trap. And let's see how he does it. So, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you emphatically, what do you say? This they said, testing him. Now, this is the key here. These people were not bringing this woman and the law to bear because they were concerned with God's holiness. Self-righteous people use the Bible to make themselves look better to use it in a comparative way, to put other people down, to say other people are defective, and they exclude themselves. And what Jesus is going to say is, as big a deal as this woman's adultery, and it's a big deal, it's not as big as the fact that you're misusing God's word to find affirmation and to self-aggrandize yourself as if you're better than this woman. That's the key. The self-righteousness and the misuse of God's word, that's what he says, in essence, is a greater sin. Okay? But it doesn't make adultery a low sin. It just means it's even worse. It's a compounded thing to try to use God's word to make yourself appear self-righteous 
and to put other people down and try to make them small. In this case, even be willing to kill somebody so that you could win an argument. This they said, testing him, verse 6, that they might have something to which accuse him. So they weren't sincere, and they were hypocritical, and they're self-righteous. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, and I love this, as though he did not hear. I don't know how many of you are married, but you, some of us as spouses, sometimes we pretend not to hear, and our spouse pretends not to hear. This is not an unknown behavior. Sometimes we ignore people. Some of us with children might be known to ignore a few things. Jesus basically stoops down and basically says, I'm not going to pay attention. This is so awful. This is so off. I'm not going to get involved in this because I know that their hearts aren't sincere. And I know where this is leading. And so Jesus ignores them. Seven. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, the brilliance of this answer is amazing. Meaning he doesn't say, oh, it's no big deal. I just forgive her, whatever. He says, Okay, she deserves that under the law, and God's, the law reveals God's heart of holiness. So, okay, but let whichever one of you isn't guilty. See, remember, self-righteousness is to make the other small and to feel good about yourself. So what Jesus says, okay, the law is holy. This is what it requires. But now you, because Deuteronomy 17 said, those who accuse must participate in the stoning. So he says, okay. If this is where you want to be, if you want to act as if the judge, then you participate. And of course, they become convicted. Look at this. Um, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. Eight. And again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So what happens is they recognize that if they are to, to determine to implement the law against her, it also must be implemented against them. And so by their conscience, one by one, they leave. Now, the oldest, we like to think the reason is because the oldest are the wisest. Well, that way, you know, but we know they're not acting wisely, so let's go with another option. That is, the oldest have lived longer and therefore know their sin better. And there's a kind of wisdom in that. So the oldest to the youngest, they depart. Now, here's the sad thing. Their conscience is condemned but they don't repent. I mean, here they realize that they're being self-righteous, and they see what they're doing, and they realize that God's not pleased. And instead of bowing at Jesus' feet or humbling themselves and seeking forgiveness, they're convicted enough not to go through with their treachery, but they're not convicted enough to repent because of their pride and their self-righteousness. And that's why they go from wanting to stone her to wanting to stone Jesus. Okay, this is what goes. See, they turn all that hatred. They're willing to put on the victim to win an argument. The woman, sure she's sinful, sure she deserves it. But they're convicted by Jesus' answer about them in the place of judge. And they realize it's not their place. So watch this. Remember, you had to have two witnesses in the law to condemn somebody. So this is the real twist of the story. This is the key to seeing the story now. Uh, Ten. Uh, excuse me. And, and Jesus was left alone and the woman, so 9b. Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst or the middle. Ten. 
When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said there, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Because she needs two voices to condemn. And she says, of course, no one, Lord. Now, here's the thing that should make us a little nervous. Okay, Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. On what right and basis did Jesus have to not condemn her for her sin, which was real? It's obvious why the scribes and the Pharisees and the self-righteous didn't have a right to do it. But why would Jesus let her off the hook? Is he saying sin's not a big deal? Is he, what, what's he saying? And what he's saying is this. He's saying, on the basis of the fact that I will be condemned on the cross in a few days, because I will be condemned in your place as the sacrifice for sin, because I will bear the condemnation which you deserve, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. This is what Jesus is still saying. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to this day. Our sins are massive, but because he was condemned in our place, Jesus does not condemn us. Now, Jesus says this interesting thing, and we close with this thought. He says, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. We might expect the religious part of us that he might say, go and sin no more, and then your sins will be forgiven. What's the problem with that? The problem is we can't change until we've been loved and forgiven. It takes the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God that we then must live by that allows us and provides the relationship and the grace to change. Meaning, without the grace of being forgiven, we can't experience the transforming grace of the Spirit to become like Jesus. We have to be forgiven by Jesus first to be able to grow and change. The shackles of the condemnation and our deserved punishment and our guilt, all that stuff has to be removed to give us the possibility of freedom to then, by the Spirit, live by the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That's the thing, then, what we're supposed to do this morning. we got to be people who, having drunk deeply, that we really are forgiven. We're not here trying to make it up, pay God back. No, no. We are people like the woman. In the story, we're like the woman. We absolutely, utterly deserve condemnation and hell, but because Jesus died on the cross for us, because of what he has done for us and in our place, if we'll receive the forgiveness, we can live by that forgiveness and grow and change. But if the pressure is on that we must grow and change first to be forgiven, nobody will get there. It's impossible because all the law and trying to be good will do is it will crush us and show us that we cannot. The only way the righteousness of the law is fulfilled is it's alien. It is the righteousness of Jesus given to us because he dies for us. And then because of his presence and that relationship, we become empowered as we seek daily to please him, to grow and to change through a lot, through a lot of repentance and a lot of forgiving of others. Do you know those are the two big instruments? Repenting, seeing, knowing God in his word, living by his spirit, telling him we're sorry when we get it wrong. And in that confession of our wrongness and our seeking of him, the spirit of God begins to transform us and change us from the inside out. You can change your external behaviors. You can say, I'm, I'm not going to eat the bowl of ice cream. I'm just going to have vegetables. You can do that. You, what you can't do is change your inward desires. When we obey God and live by the forgiveness he's offered and we make choices that please him in the external world, the Holy Spirit changes our heart. Can you imagine heaven? Maybe we'll want broccoli. I mean, 
okay, Bruce says that wouldn't be heaven. All right, I don't know. All right. So Jesus knows he's taking the condemnation on himself. He's not in any way. No one will ever get better by being told that their sins, which accuse them, are little. The gospel is our sins are big, but our God's love for us on the cross is infinitely bigger and better. When Jesus says this and exposes the self-righteousness of the religious people, their hatred it returns away from the woman back onto him. So that by the end of the chapter, I mean, he tells them, I mean, can you imagine telling them, you're of your, you, you don't get it because you're not really a Jew of Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. I mean, Jesus tells it to him in very ugly and straightforward terms. But these are the people who would have killed this woman just to win an argument. That's how self-righteous and crazy they were. They weren't interested in the holiness of God. They were winning, concerned about making themselves look better and disaffecting the love that other people had towards Jesus. So by the end of this chapter, in the 33rd verse, I believe it was, that we read and during the gospel, as uh, Father, no, excuse me, as Larry read for us a, a few minutes ago, they took up stones to kill him. So what begins here and is dealt with in Jesus head on and face first ends up turning them against him and even a greater determination to kill him. But we serve a God who in his love and his mercy upholds righteousness, but also justice or righteousness meets mercy in the ministry and life of Jesus. That the one who, this is what Hebrews was about. He is the high priest of things to come, we read. All right? So that also, that by his blood, he is the high priest and the perfect sacrifice. So that the one who offers is in fact the offering. And on the cross, in his shed blood, we're not just externally clean like the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean as we read a few minutes ago. But rather, by the blood of Jesus, it's not just an external way, but our consciousness. The knowledge of all the evil we've done can be wiped clean and reset by the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. Jesus is the only way in which the justice of God and the mercy of God can come together and to meet us in a way that is meaningful, tangible, and experiential. This is the God we serve this morning. We want to be people as we move into this Passion Week where we remember Jesus' great love that he endured all the betrayals. This week, the focus is on the emotional pain of knowing that your friends and people are going to betray you and the people that God had instituted in positions of authority have betrayed their trust. Jesus facing all that kind of rejection. Uh, and, and so the Passion Week is remind us of the emotional and relational pain. And then next week, Holy Week, is all about, of course, not forgetting that, but in addition, the physical suffering that he endured uh, in his going to the cross. Our God is a God who went to the cross to take the condemnation off of us, but the only way to do that was to take that condemnation upon him. What a Savior, what a God, that he would love us like that. What an what a opportunity that our consciences can be clean, not because our sins are little, but because the blood of Jesus is so incredible, all right? So, Lord Jesus, this morning we come, and Lord, we, we are so tempted in so many ways to be self-righteous, and there's something within us that wants to look down on others, excluding ourselves from your righteous requirements. Sometimes we're, we, we feel better about ourselves to act as if sin doesn't really matter because we don't want to say something unkind, and, and, and yet, Lord, you put it best, Lord, when you upheld the righteousness and the holiness of God 
and your requirements, but still insisted that you didn't condemn because you were willing to be condemned in our place. So Lord, we pray, would you help us to drink deeply from your salvation, that we would know profoundly and thoroughly what it means that we are people that are forgiven by your singular sacrifice on the cross. Lord, this morning, once again, as we come uh, to participate in the body and blood of Jesus, uh, as we, we re-up in our commitment and our humility and our uh, submission to you as Savior and Lord, Lord, we ratify the covenant, the new covenant in your blood. Lord, that you stood in our place, that you bore all these things to carry them away from us, and that you're continually saying your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Lord, give us the grace to live by the forgiveness. Uh, Lord, not taking it lightly, but to live within the parameters of following you because of what you've done on the cross. We ask these things in the most beautiful name, the most wonderful name, the name of Jesus, and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven.